Well, as uh, David mentioned, um, I've had the awesome opportunity the last couple of months to uh, preach God's Word here at FBCO. In August, we looked at Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, and uh, saw how Christ's sacrifice perfects sinners once and for all, and how this sacrifice does not ever need to be repeated again. Last month, we looked into Psalm 46, and in this we saw how we are to proclaim the works of the Lord, even whenever life gets tough, because we know that Christ walks with us through our suffering. Tonight, as you might have um, understood by now, we are going to be looking at a familiar text in Scripture for many of you to see how our faith in Christ should move us towards action because of Christ's perfect sacrifice and because he is faithful to walk with us even in the darkest of times. Before we do that, though, um, we need to look at the book of James. And the book of James is one of the last books to be included into our New Testament canon. And there's a whole host of reasons as to why this could have been, whether it be a limited circulation or an unknown author. If we look at that for a second, current Christian scholars believe that the author of the book of James was, in fact, James, the brother of Jesus. If we look at early church historians, though, Origen is actually the first church father to present this idea, and that's not until the third century. So there's a couple hundred years where this idea goes back and forth. So if we operate under the idea that the author of James is, in fact, the brother of Jesus, then that means that the epistle had to have been written before 62 AD. Because according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, this is the year in which James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred. Other scholars believe that James was actually written even earlier, perhaps before 50 AD and the fall of Jerusalem. If this were the case, then it would be one of the first Christian documents. Some of the reasons for this uh, include the Jewish and Gentile controversy found in Acts 15 that we talked about a couple of months ago is not found anywhere in the book of James. If this were the case, it would mean that Paul was dependent upon James's teaching, not the other way around. Regardless of the date that you subscribe to, though, we do know that James was a letter written to Jewish Christians living in the diaspora, much like the book of Hebrews. There is a tradition, a false one at that, that um, James contradicted Paul regarding what truly saves a person. As we know, Paul says that grace alone is what saves, while we will see tonight in James 2, 14 to 26, that faith requires works. At face value, these ideas seem to contradict one another. But as we will look into tonight, we see that these ideas complement one another and should encourage Christians today to live out our faith through the way in which we live our lives. So with that in mind, please turn in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this night. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and dive into your word. God, it is my prayer that tonight, as we dive into your word, that we will see what it is that your servant James was meaning whenever he penned these words. Help us to leave changed and help us to leave as a people who will let our faith be evident to a dying world by the way that we live our lives. It's your name we pray. Amen. Imagine for a moment that your brother is on death row for a crime that he did not commit. A faulty trial and poor decision by the judge have led to this verdict. Your reaction would be justifiably mad. You, hearing the sentence at the courtroom, go out and begin to collect evidence for yourself. You spend weeks of your life trying to prove your brother's innocence. Finally, you find something that the court overlooked something of enough weight to merit a new trial. And during the second trial, your brother is found to be innocent, something that you knew all along. See, if you have faith in something, you stand up for it. If you have faith in someone, you stand up up for them. Regardless of the significance of the person or thing that you have faith in, your actions will reflect that faith. In this case, the very life of a man was at stake. In the case below that we'll be looking at tonight, the eternal state of the world is at stake. See, if Jesus was on trial, how far would we go to prove to the world around us that he truly is who he said he was? Can faith without action save? James opens up this passage by asking a very simple question, can faith without works save? As mentioned above, this question seems to sound odd to our ears because we're very familiar with Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where he states that it is faith alone that saves. So it's an important distinction to make right here that James and Paul are not talking about the same thing. In Romans 3, Paul talks about the works of the law being unable to save a man. James saying that deeds of faith are necessary for salvation is not contradicting Paul because these works are not the saving agent. Paul speaks of circumcision of the flesh following the laws of Moses. And this is a completely different type of work than what James is talking about in James chapter 2. Think about it like this. 
Paul is talking about works done according to the law before one's acceptance of the gospel. It's your own works. It's your own merit. This can never save you. James, meanwhile, is speaking of works done in obedience to the gospel. It's not just belief. It's not just belief. If you believe in the gospel, you are a transformed person. Therefore, your very actions change. If we look ahead to verses 15 and 16 in the text, we see that to James, demonstrating our faith through actions of mercy is how we reveal our faith to the world. Think about the vertical and horizontal Christian image. We have a relationship with God vertically. We also have a relationship with others around us horizontally. What James shows in these opening three verses is that a faith that has no horizontal existence is not a saving faith. A true faith in God vertically results in deeds and actions of mercy to those around us. James's argument essentially boils down to this. Faith without works is good for no one. Deeds or actions demonstrate the validity of our faith, and without them, our claim is empty because the needy do not receive help. Oftentimes, whenever we give gifts to people, as we're about to be doing as the Christmas season uh, comes into full swing, we do so because of a relationship with a person, or because they're a friend, or possibly you do so because in the back of your mind, you know that if you give someone else a gift, they will reciprocate and give you a gift. I know how some of you all work. (laughs) If we look in Roman society at this time, the way that they went about gift giving was that it was the poor people who gave gifts to the rich people. Now that doesn't seem to make sense in our mind. We think, well, the blessed, the rich people, they will be the ones to be generous and give to poor people. That's not how how gift giving worked back then. Wealth had to flow up before it flowed down. So whenever we look at what James says, he's cutting against the idea By showing how those who are blessed should help out those who are in need, not because those who are in need will be able to give a gift back, but rather because it is what Christ calls us to do. How hollow are nice words without being backed up with righteous action? A word of blessing without an action of blessing is like the promise for salvation without the saving act of Christ on the cross. It's empty. We have received grace from God, and therefore we should readily give that same grace out to those around us. Would you help Jesus out if you saw him on the side of the street and he was hungry or without clothing? There shouldn't even be a thought. There's no hesitation. Of course we would. Why would we not do the same for those in need today? The glory of God should be visible in our lives instead of being brought into question because of our inaction. James seems to challenge all believers to help their neighbors and those who are needy out, not just those who are rich or those who are well off. Our church does so many things to help our community out. So I want to pause here because this is a dose of encouragement. We do things like the day of giving where we help people in our community who may not have the things to survive on a daily basis. We help out with Operation Christmas Child to help families in need have a better Christmas season 
We're getting ready for Back to Bethlehem, where we're going to be showcasing what truly happened at Christmas to a world that has no idea what Christmas is truly about. So our church does a lot of great things, and we do some awesome other ministries as well to help our community out. However, this call from James extends beyond the corporate level into the individual one as well. How well do we help out people in our own sphere of influence? How well do we help out people around us, not just materially, but also spiritually? How do we offer them biblical and counsel whenever they are caught up in the midst of a storm? How are we meeting the spiritual needs of those in our lives? Do we merely tell them, hi, I go to First Baptist Church Ozark and I believe in Jesus Christ. I hope you have a good day. I pray not. I pray that whenever we are faced with situations like this, that we don't merely give them our biblical profession, but we enter into meeting a desperate need. In verse 17, James comes back to his original question asked in verse 14, and he answers it. Just as a word of blessing without an act of blessing amounts to nothing, faith without action is dead. Profession of faith by itself apart from merciful action, is dead. Faith that does not contain within it the desire or will to act is dead. In the Greek text, the word for dead is nekra, which means lifeless or useless. Is your faith lifeless? Is it useless? It's not what we're called to be. Self-centeredness rather than Christ-centeredness seems to be at the heart of this issue for James. To have faith and to say that we have faith are two separate things. To simply believe that our profession is what saves us is to accept a cheapened and watered-down gospel. A dead body is just as useful as a dead faith. It's not useful at all. If we proceed to verses 18 and 19, James begins to ask what a true faith is. And he uses an interlocutor to pose this question here. This is an imaginary person used for James to strengthen his argument or his point. Paul does this often in his letters, especially in the book of Romans. And what we see in verse 18 is that Christians cannot be divided into two separate camps. Doers and hearers. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a doer of the word of God. By acting upon the word of God, we reveal our faith in God. By horizontal actions, by meeting the needs of needy people around us, we reveal a true faith in God. A lifeless faith cannot be shown to be alive, just as a lifeless body cannot be shown to be living. The claim of faith is empty, where there is no action of faith made available to those around us. You cannot say that you have faith without showing so by works, according to James. Now, this might bring you to question the authenticity of other people's works. It's kind of the day and age we're in. You don't do things the way that I like to do them, so you must be wrong and I must be right. Don't do that. We are called to live out what we say to believe, and that is how we provide proof of our faith. Just because someone does something a little bit differently does not necessarily mean that they're wrong and you're right. Because the Apostle Paul in Romans 
paints the picture that we are all a part of the body of Christ. We all serve a different role. Just as hands don't act the same as your feet, it's not that your feet are wrong and your hands are right. It's that we have a different role. So just because someone does something differently does not mean that they're wrong. So rather than looking at a brother or sister with skepticism, examine if your own faith is lifeless or if your own faith is producing deeds of mercy to the needy. To James, a faith that is completely built upon verbal profession is lifeless and it's useless. It's dead. Just as lifeless faith is not saving faith, intellectual knowledge also is not what saves. In verse 19, James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The New American Standard Bible says, Well done. Well done. If we look back to verse 8 in chapter 2, We see that only those who love your neighbor as yourself are truly doing well. See, the Jews, they believed in the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. They believed that God is one. They believed in truth. James says, well done, you're right. However, the point is this, the profession is as good as far as it goes. However, it does not go far at all. It is not what saves. Truth cannot save you. James furthers this point by stating that even the demons have a monotheistic faith in God. However, I think each and every one of us in here would say that demons surely are not saved. It goes on to say that they shudder. If we look at America in 2018, we see a lot of people that believe at least something truthful about God. Maybe it's that he was the creator, or that he is eternal, or maybe that he is loving. Those are all true things about God. A lot of people believe something true about Jesus. Maybe it's that he is the son of God or that he died on the cross or that he was a good person that produced miracles. These are true things. However, mere Bible facts do not lead to eternal life. You can have so much head knowledge about God and still go to hell on a full ride Bible scholarship if Christ is not the Lord of your life. In verses 20 through 26, we find the climax of James's argument here. And as if James's demonic faith example weren't enough, he comes back with some positive examples that his Jewish audience would have most certainly understood. In verse 20, um, in the Greek text, James calls this foolish person an insane fellow. I love that because we all know what insanity means, doing the same thing over and over and over again, but expecting a different result. And that got me thinking, how often do we find ourselves in a situation or an opportunity to make known the works of the Lord, and we pass it by in order to stay comfortable, to stay in our bubble where we know that we are secure, to not act upon it because it's easier to not act. And then maybe it's an hour later, a day later, or a week later, an overwhelming sense of guilt comes upon us and we fall on our knees and we say, God, I'm sorry, give me another chance. And then we get another chance and we do the same thing over and over and over again. James seems to make the point that this insanity is traced to the character of the person. To lack understanding is to act foolishly. If we lack understanding... 
James 1.5 says to simply ask God because he is willing to give us understanding. The believer who wrongly believes about the nature of faith is foolish because he ignores or twists the truth of God. To James, the very foundation of faith was at stake here. Because favoritism and inaction had destructive ramifications for the church of his day. That's what James is talking about all the way up until verse 14 of chapter 2. The ramifications of favoritism in the church. And unfortunately, favoritism and inaction still have destructive consequences for the church 2,000 years later. To ignore those with needs is to lessen the gospel And it ignores Christ's commandment to love others as ourselves. To claim to have faith, but to have no works to back that up, regardless of the amount of knowledge that you possess, is to be unavailable of eternal life. Even though you are alive, you are in fact dead. If we look back at the Apostle Paul and compare him to James, to Paul, the purpose of faith is justification in his legal argument in Romans. And works aren't, nor could they ever be, the saving agent. James sees works as useful because they reveal your faith. It's not that you are saved because of the things you are doing. No, you are doing things because you are, in fact, saved. Faith is trust in God alone, but must be wholehearted and produce good deeds based upon the mercy that you first received from God. Faith is always active. In our world, um, a lot of things are gray. There's no absolute truth. There's no black and white. Everything's subjective. Everything is what you want it to be. Everything is gray. Not to James. To James, it's black and white. You either do good deeds that are in agreement with God, or you produce evil deeds that contradict him and promote your own righteousness. James proceeds from verse 20 to bring up a couple of examples of the Christian faith to boost his claim that a saving faith requires deeds. Abraham, as we know, is the father of the Jewish nation from Genesis 12. However, from the Apostle Paul, we also see that he is the father to Gentile Christians like you and I as well, because we are grafted into the seed of Abraham. God regarded Abraham as righteous for offering up his son Isaac. And he endured a trial of extraordinary proportions and were never explicitly told why. However, he did so, and because of it, God regarded him as righteous. We see an account of this in Hebrews' Hall of Faith passage in Hebrews 11. And in verses 17 through 19, there is a similar accounting of righteousness on Abraham's account. This event is similar to James's theme of persevering through difficult times in James 1, 2 through 4. Difficult times and trials, uh, they're not bad, but rather they serve to prove our faith. In verse 22, James emphasizes that in Abraham, that without action, faith cannot be complete. This is because of two things. First, without action, there is no perseverance. If you're doing things the way that the world says to do them, you're not going to persevere because there's going to be no opposition. With action, there is perseverance gained. Secondly, perseverance proves the genuineness of faith. It proves a true relationship with God. Just as we saw in Hebrews a couple of months ago, there is a distinction between justification and sanctification. 
We are perfect in the eyes of God from a legal sense because Christ's blood is put on our accounts in the eyes of a holy God. Aren't you thankful for that? Everyone should have said amen there. I don't know what I missed. But, however, we are progressively made more like Christ. This is the process of sanctification. So James views this process of us being justified as us revealing our works. We are changed. And it's not just a legal thing. We are a completely new creation. We act differently. We think differently. It still might be you on the outside, but inside you are a completely different person. In other words, you reveal that you are saved by performing acts of mercy upon the mercy that God has given to you. So just as Abraham exhibited working faith, God imputed righteousness on his account. If we look at how Paul viewed Abraham in Romans 4, we see that against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. James looks at Abraham as how saving faith operates. Paul looks at Abraham as how God forgives sinners. Abraham became known as a friend of God. A friend of God. A Chaldean, a sinner, became known as a friend of God. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Because just as Abraham is no longer a friend of God, no longer an enemy of God, but now a friend of God, you and I, because of what Christ has done, can become friends of God. I had a professor in college once say this, I was not just a bad man, I was a dead man. That's all of our stories. We were not just lost, we were not just bad. We were dead in our sins. We were opponents of God. The claim of faith requires demonstration and action Paul looks at faith as a life-changing outcome that changes the account of the person. James looks at faith and merely adds that the person's faith must be accompanied by righteous action. And this brings in the process of sanctification, being conformed into the image of God day by day. Verse 25 should be a reason to rejoice among Christians around the world because none of us are going to go down in the history books as the Father of many nations. None of us are going to have descendants as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach. However, in verse 25, and I know that it can be dangerous to insert ourselves into biblical text, but we can relate with the status of Rahab. Your English translation says that she was a prostitute, and she very well could have been. However, the Hebrew word used to describe her occupation is zona which also referred to an innkeeper numerous times in Scripture. Because the Israelite spies came into her home, it's likely, or at least thought about, that she was an innkeeper, and this helped hide the spies from the local authorities because their identities were protected as guests of Rahab. Either way you look at this, she had nothing to gain by helping these spies out. She went against her very own nation, Let me say that again. She went against her very own nation. We are called to obey God first and foremost. At the very best, she was a normal everyday citizen. And at the very worst, she was at the bottom of society 
She is a stark contrast to Abraham, who was wealthy, had a, a very high status. We can relate with a normal, everyday citizen. We can relate with her status. And we see how God uses two non-Jews, a Chaldean and a Canaanite, and credits their accounts as righteous. James uses them as exemplars to our faith. God can use anyone at any time if he chooses to. He can even use a sinner like you and I to further his kingdom. Regardless of your past, your flaws, your shortcomings, your mistakes, God can use you and he has a purpose for your life. Now before I get deemed a prosperity gospel preacher, I'm going to pause and say that it's not easy. Now, the Christian life comes with persecution and suffering. It's not easy, but as a follower of Christ, we are called to something higher than ourselves. We get to play a role in the advancement of the kingdom of God, and there is no greater calling than that. James wraps up this message in verse 26, and he uses the Greek word pneuma regarding the spirit. This is a substance that animates the body. And in the ancient world, they believed in a correlation between spirit and body. You couldn't have a living body without a spirit. In the same light, works do not justify the believer in God's sight. They can't do so. Rather, what works do is they demonstrate the genuineness of faith to those around us, both inside and outside of our local church. Our faith is useful as God intended it to be whenever it exists horizontally. The spirit and the body are in one accord. This is contrasted with a body and spirit being separated, because when they are separated, death is the outcome. God showed mercy to us through action. Therefore, we too are called by action to show mercy to others. So to answer the question, what does it mean to have dead faith? Firstly, the very best works that the world can offer without faith in God are dead. At best, you're dead. At worst, you're dead. Only through faith can we do good. Secondly, if deeds of faith are absent, one's faith is most likely not genuine because the evidence of their lives supports this claim. Now, the reality might be otherwise. We all go through bouts of double-mindedness and slothfulness and laziness. However, to James, these must be corrected. Self-deception is a cancer to the person and to the church body at large because we fail to live a life that produces works and deeds of mercy to those in need. To James, faith without works is like a dead body, but we have been made alive with Christ. Christ should permeate our actions, our thoughts. Therefore, we should exhibit deeds of mercy not to attain salvation, not to attain some extra benefit or something. Rather, we should do so to avoid distorting the very word of God and not aiding those in need in our very midst. So where does this message leave us? In a world that promotes independency and building up your own fame and promoting yourself. James's message of showing mercy to, mercy to the needy represents a stark contrast. The difference is this, though. Even atheists can offer food to a hungry person. However, what an atheist cannot do 
just provide a hungry person with temporary and eternal nourishment. The takeaway for a body of believers from James 2 is that we cannot claim to be followers of Christ whenever we see a need and either ignore it or merely offer a word of blessing without an action of blessing. Because whenever we do this, we are no different than the priest and Levite was to the injured man in the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, 30-37. Rather, there's three points of application here. First, we are called to let our actions reveal our faith in God. Whenever we claim to believe in a God of mercy and we fail to show mercy to those around us, how are we reflecting the mercy that we receive from Christ? John Piper puts it like this, The faith alone which justifies is never alone, but always bearing transforming fruit. We are called to be a people of action and to share the grace and mercy that we receive from God with a world that is in desperate need of it. Secondly, acts of mercy should extend outside our church body. It's easy to love people that you're friends with or people that you know really well. It's a little harder to love people who we don't know at all, and it's almost impossible to love those who persecute us or don't like us. However, James's call is to show the same mercy that you received to all you come in contact with. That's hard to do. However, we are to remember that we were not just lost or bad. We were dead at one point in time before Christ made us alive. As born-again believers, doctrine is important. It's very important. We can discuss soteriology and eschatology until the cows come home. We can debate the arguments of imputed righteousness and substitutionary atonement. However, if we do so while not showing compassion to the needy, we're no different than the Pharisees were. What matters is the circumcision of the heart, not the circumcision of the flesh or mere head knowledge. That's from Paul in Romans 2.29. Finally, don't stop your spiritual journey after coming to the understanding of your need for Christ. Aren't you glad that Christ saved you from your sins in the eyes of a holy and just God? A little better that time. (laughs) Think for a moment, though. Think if that's where we stop in our spiritual journey. Think if we stop whenever we walk down the aisle. Think if we stop after we leave the baptismal waters. That's not what we're called to do. Paul speaks of an already not yet kingdom where believers are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. We experience a glimpse of the glory to come, a glory that will be fully manifested at the second coming of Christ. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit for a reason. We're filled with it so that we can act and so we can have the Spirit live through our lives and reveal an inward transformation that stands in such a contrast to what the world has to offer. Christ can save anyone at any time, and he can use even the worst of sinners like you and I to reveal his power and glory to a lost and dying world. So don't stop your walk with Christ after a profession of faith or after coming to understand your need for Christ. It's hard work. It's hard work. You will experience suffering and persecution for it, but we are called to make known the works of the Lord, not just in our profession, not just in the things we say, but in the way we live our life. We are to live a transformed 
life. Our faith is a laborious one. However, there is no greater call than to live as Christ and to share his mercy and grace with people whom the world have deemed worthless and unnecessary. Faith is the root. Good works are the uh, fruits that we bear. And we must see to it that we have both of these. We must see that either one without the other cannot exist. This is the grace of God where we stand. Other people around us should see a changed person because you were dead and now Christ lives inside of you. So let that be our call to action today and for the rest of our lives to live a life that bears fruit, that we are a changed person from the inside out. Let Christ live through our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for not just leaving us where we're at. Thank you that whenever we were enemies of you, that you loved us and that you provided a way out, God. Thank you that we can be called friends of God. I pray as we go from this place that we will live our lives in such a way that anyone who sees our actions sees the way that we live our lives, that they will see something so radically different than everything that this world has to offer, that they will see a change, a transformation that can only come from you. And God, that they will come to a saving knowledge of who you are. God, let us leave changed and let us leave a mark on this world that can only come from your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.